Suncast is brought to you by SunGrow, providing clean power for all. Suncast is also brought to you by Trina Solar. Hey there, Solar Warriors. I'm Nico Johnson, and this is Suncast. Each week, I pull back the veil on the life and business insights of clean tech entrepreneurs building the most noble and impactful companies of our time. I hope what you learn from this conversation is a catalyst for your own growth. So thanks for tuning in and welcome to our tribe. Hey, yo, Solar Warrior. Welcome back to another Tactical Tuesday. These are conversations with subject matter experts designed to give you the practical tools, tips, and advice to build your solar business or career and grow with us here on Suncast. If you tuned in last Tuesday, then you no doubt listened through a wonderful recap of that show we all went to back in Houston a few weeks ago called Sarah Week. As we mentioned there, it is the who's who in the energy business. And I got a chance to sit down with none other than the head of sales for a rather large division of Siemens Energy. That's right, Siemens Energy. Lynette Casey is the head of America Sales for Electrification Automation and digitalization. She's had a remarkable career and I had a wonderful conversation in the heart, in the din of Sarah Week with Annette about how she's managed the twists and turns of her corporate career that also encompassed time when she was building a family on top of building a quite successful career. Lynette was really kind and gracious to give almost an hour of her time during this show and today you get to listen in to how that conversation unfolded along with how Lynette Casey ended up becoming head of sales for Siemens Energy's electrification, automation, and digitalization segment. Stay tuned. And hey, if you love this kind of content, well, you'll want to be here every Tuesday as we go deep with a subject matter expert and every Thursday where we do executive profiles of those leaders on the front lines, perhaps just like you. You can find resources from all of these conversations and learn more about our guests and their recommendations over in the show notes at mysuncast.com. And while you're at it, please subscribe to the show on your favorite podcast platform, as that will allow you to not miss any of these episodes as they are released. Let's get down to business and tune up your skills, Solar Warrior, with another practical, tactical conversation here on Suncast. So ordinarily, I'll say to someone, at what point did it become clear to you that there was an opportunity in the solar energy sector, right? I don't know what that pivot is for you. So I'm trying to thread that needle yeah, okay. of like the career pivot that led you to Siemens. It wasn't like I ever said, I want to go into energy. Yeah. I didn't even know what energy was, right? Yeah. Especially when I went to college, I was interested in ocean science, ocean studies is why I first went to Maine Maritime. Yeah. And we can talk about my decision to go there, I yeah. guess, as a very male dominated school. But then from that, I quickly realized like, I'm not sure what the career paths are for me in ocean studies. Anyway, I switched yeah. to international business and logistics. At school. At school, yeah. So I switched okay. majors and then I went into logistics, which I had to have a co-op. And so then I, I went and worked for the Navy SEALs because my husband, I got married right out of college and like the week after graduation and he was stationed at the 
in Panama City Beach, Florida, which is where the Navy dive school was. So I needed to find a job there. And it just happened that logistics was my degree. And so I got a job with a government contractor doing literally logistics um, and worked with a Navy SEAL on helping with the logistics of the the small SEAL delivery vehicle, which is the two-man submarine. I was there for two years and then um, my husband was getting out of the Navy yeah. and Siemens Energy had recruited him. And this was in 2001. Um, so we were moving to Orlando for his job to Got go it. work for Siemens Energy. And so within about three months, at that point, we were in the gas turbine boom. Um, this was, yeah. you know, 20 some odd years ago now. So he was a gas turbine engineer. Yeah. And so that was clearly his lane. And he yeah. knew what energy was. And that was his career path. But then um, I got a job within a logistics organization inside Siemens Energy where we were churning out 50 gas turbines you know, a year. And so it, it was kind of not really a choice to go into energy, per oh, se. Yeah. I just kind of fell into it and was able to use my education and experience at this point, my growing experience, to contribute to this field of energy that I'd never even really thought about, right? And so I've been at Siemens Energy since then, since 2001. And so it's been a a journey. And as we do this transition, my job has evolved and my task has evolved and what I've been focusing on has evolved, right? But I go back to that core education of international business, German company, you know, now in my position, I have from Canada to Argentina, all of the Americas. So lots of different countries, cultures, you know, techno-economic, political considerations in every one of those countries are different. The HR considerations are different. The people, the culture, right? So the international business and then the logistics piece of really how things work, how they work together, how they flow from point A to point B. It wasn't really a choice to go into energy, right? It was just using my curiosity and my skill set. So in that 20-some-odd year career now with Siemens Energy, I went from Filling the factory with parts and pieces, very tactical logistics flow of of parts and pieces, right, into procurement. And so I got the whole view of how we partner with vendors, especially in this technology space. So at the time, I was working on all of the major components that go into our gas turbines. So there's some pretty cool technology in there as far as metallurgy and thermo, all the thermodynamics behind that and the thermal barrier coatings, which came from the space shuttle, you know, technology. So cool technology to enable our gas turbines at that point. Then I went into inventory management and started managing people that were managing stuff in in the warehouse to get out to our customers. And then um, I went out to the field. Uh, So I left Florida and Went back to New England, um, which is where I'm from originally, and was inside sales. So I was working, um, I was putting together proposals. Inside sales. So were you managing people? So you were managing people in the logistics department, and then you go back into inside sales, probably as an individual contributor? Yeah, yeah, exactly. That must have been scary. Yeah, a little bit, but it was a personal choice again. So at this point, I had two young children, and so um, three and five, and I was in Florida, and my family was in New England. My husband's family was in Colorado, so we were raising these kids, working full-time, both of us. Like It was a a personal choice that when my daughter was going to go into kindergarten, um, she has significant special needs as well. So we went to talk um, to the school about what that would look like, and we quickly realized that maybe we should go back home where there's more family support support and more school. The New England school districts are, you know, notoriously really good K through 12 plus college, right? So we moved back home, closer to home. Um, So it was, again, I think this contributes to how women have to make choices as well, right, for their families. And so I took kind of a sidestep in my career. Yes, I was managing people when I was in Orlando and I was in the corporate headquarters and that was great, but I had to make these different choices 
to go back home with family support, um, to find the right place for my kids to grow up and to find the, the education, special education and treatment that my daughter needed. And so I, I took a step back from the career ladder, if you will, right? So I wasn't managing people. I was now inside sales. My former manager in Orlando told my new manager that you've got a Ferrari on a lawnmower, you know, like she is not positioned correctly in this role. Um, but it, it had to be a personal choice. So, so that I could be mom and I could be employee and I could balance them both. Mm. So for about 10 years, I was inside sales while I raised my kids and my daughter has, like I said, really intense special needs. Yeah. So um, it gave you time. It gave me time, but, and, and her needs were really intense, um, a lot of hospitalizations and residential treatment. So in that phase of my career, I was able to work with uh, Senator Kennedy at the time and my state representative, who's now the ambassador to Ireland, and to change some legislation for kids with special needs. And so actually that also plays into why I'm at Siemens Energy, right? You know, Siemens Energy really treated me like family when I needed family, right? I mentioned wow. that I moved home to be near yeah. family, but in retrospect, those 10 years were super difficult. I mm. mean, we were in emergency room and inpatient yeah. and all of that. And my team around me, the guy, the sales guys, they're all guys yes. that, that I was supporting were like, let us know what we can do. I was able, this was all way before COVID when right. working remotely was not a thing, right? And uh, my boss at the time was like, work from the hospital room yeah. if you have to, right? So I would literally, when my daughter was asleep, I'd work and we just made it work. And yeah. they came, they rallied around me. They were all dads, which I yeah. think we forget in this gender conversation. Dads are parents too, right? And they have the similar struggles that we have. And so they're so empathetic and they can be amazing allies and they should be amazing allies. And that my team that was around me were amazing allies at a time when I was in personal, complete crisis. My family was in crisis, right? But the like steady state was my work family. Yeah. And so I've always kind of looked at that and appreciated that so much that I've stayed at the company, right? I get headhunters call me all the time. I get offers. I have an incredible network through the Women's Energy Network, which we'll talk about. I could go anywhere at any time, but I choose to stay because of that experience of them holding me in safety, right? Like holding that space for me and my family for those 10 years of my career when I had to make different decisions other than climb the corporate ladder. And I think that that hopefully resonates with other people that, you know, it's okay to take a sidestep. I think we feel pressured, all of us, men or women, right, to like climb the corporate ladder. But at some points in your life, you have to say, I'm taking a sidestep. I'm going to hang out here and I'll come back and climb later. So I was inside sales for a long time. I spoke with customers all the time, right? I was the one doing all the purchase orders and the offer letters. And so like the tactical stuff. So I got a real appreciation for customer engagement and like being there with the customer through all the stuff, right? which really, in hindsight, positioned me really well to go outside sales. Yeah, I think that folks underappreciate the breadth of experience that one can gain working at a major corporation. Um, I tell folks all the time coming out of school, they're like, oh, I want to work at a startup. I'm like, that's, that's great, except you will wear a whole bunch of hats and you'll have no training for what any of them are supposed to be doing. Yep. And if you were to instead swallow your pride and go work for a major utility or for Procter & Gamble or Clorox, you'd have a better understanding of how, what it looks like when a company is run well. Right. And how each individual, sort of each area serves the other areas. And you'll get more at-bats, so to speak, to develop the pattern matching that will serve you either when you 
are eventually elevated to leadership role or when you step out to a startup and you're just a more capable executive. Right. Yeah. To get all of that yeah. constellation of experience and you yeah. never know what you're going to learn on a daily right. basis. Right. Yeah. yeah. And I feel like my inside sales role, it was much like running a small business because yes. it was like you're out here in a field office, you're in front of customer. Like you've got to do what you got to do. Some days you're copying papers. Some days you're putting together an offer letter that's worth millions of dollars. Some days you go sit in front of a customer and have to explain what's going on. Right. So like, it's just like a small business. So yeah, I learned a lot in that 10 years in every possible way and in work and home and all of that. Right. And then, um, my manager that was so incredibly supportive, uh, was retiring and he said, okay, Things seem more stable with your daughter and everything. And you've been able to juggle this for 10 years. I'm retiring. If you don't leave the nest now, who knows what will happen with the next manager? So you're going outside sales. I was like, I don't know if I can do all the traveling. And he's like, you're going. You're pushed. pushed out of the nest, right? So I had someone that believed in me and forced me out of my comfort zone, which is where life happens, right? At the end of your comfort zone. And, and that growth opportunity that I wouldn't have chosen because I was so stuck slogging through the trauma of the 10 years of juggling all this that I didn't realize the inflection point in my own career. So my, my predecessors had sold about one to $3 million per year in that same opportunity patch. And I think they thought, how bad could she screw it up, right? Like we're going to push her out of the nest and give her this opportunity and see what she does with it. So same opportunity patch, same customers, I went out and first year I was able to sell 15 million. Wow. The second year it was about 250 million. We were doing lots of really cool um, battery storage stuff at the time with a partner of ours and um, wind and transformers to go along with it. And I really dove into kind of the renewable space in New England was my, my territory. So I really looked beyond what I had as an operating fleet. I had, I think, five operating um, gas turbine, steam turbine plants in that area, which was kind of our core business. But I looked at, okay, there's renewable developers. There's utilities that are struggling with this energy transition of offshore wind is starting to come into play. How do we prepare the grid for that? And really kind of broaden my horizons beyond the turbines that I had called home for so many years and really was able to expand my network. I think being part of the founding starters of the Women's Energy Network in Boston was a great networking opportunity to meet with other women in that ecosystem of, of Boston for energy. I grew and grew kind of my, my customer book and my order book. And my new manager came up. He would usually do a ride along with all of his employees and just kind of see us in front of customers and everything. And we were out to dinner, just the two of us. And he was like, I literally had no idea what we had here in the region. Like, I didn't know you existed. Wow. He was in my same organization in this big company for years and didn't know I existed because I was inside sales, yeah. right? So they're just doing all the paperwork stuff. And he was Can like, you give for context, like how many people are in this organization? Siemens Energy itself globally is around 91,000. We just had 91, the, recent, the recent acquisition of um, Siemens Gamesa, I think probably brings mm, yeah. us up to 95, let's yeah. call it roughly. I'm sure, sure someone has the specific numbers. Here in the United States, it's about 11,000 11, employees. And in the Northeast region? 
Northeast region for the sales organization that I was in, maybe 10. 10. 10, yeah. And so be that as it may, like we're talking less than 50 people. Well, at that time, the regions were a little bit different. So he was okay. part of an organization of about 125 sales Okay, that's people. what I'm looking for, right. yeah. Okay, so, cool. Yeah, and he just didn't even know what I was doing or that yeah. I existed. When that old manager retired, he took on that role plus kept his region. So the regions expanded. So he didn't really have a need to know me to excuse the, <laughs> didn't even know I was there kind sure. of thing. Yeah. You know, he was like, wow, I didn't realize the competence we had. And then he, I didn't, wasn't confident enough in myself and he was really able to come alongside me. And um, we had a really nice dinner conversation about my daughter's stuff, which I really didn't share very much right. at work. Very private with it. Really private with it because I didn't want to be perceived as like, not capable or uh -huh. too distracted or, or being any, catered to or being catered to or any of those things. Yeah. And so I really, the people right in my, my close circle knew I was working from a hospital bed, but even like what was going on there, they didn't necessarily know the details because I kept it, I kept it in boxes, right? right. The work box, this is the home box. We don't talk about it. Right. And so this, this, um, former manager of mine, um, and I guess mentor, I should yeah. call or coach. I should call Both. him at this point, whatever, whatever word we want to use. His name? Pete. Yeah. So he was really, um, we had this dinner conversation and he's like, I had no idea all that you were going through. Right. Yeah. And he was like, literally everything you just told me is sales. Like you've been selling, you, you couldn't change legislation and work with, you know, politicians and the people. He was, it. he was like, that was all sales. Yeah. You just weren't selling turbans. Yes. You were selling legislation. That's right. <laughs> he's like, it's the same skill set. Yes. And he's like, you should share that more broadly because that it really speaks to your, your skill set. And I never had seen it that way. And for him to be an ally and to see me and yeah. to kind of reframe it for me, gave me kind of the first glimmer of confidence that, okay, like maybe I can do this. Right. Um, so I went out, I had all these customers and I slowly, you know, compounded on that confidence, I guess, and found allies in those customer organizations. And there were other parents there with similar struggles. And like, we're all just people when it comes down to it. And so um, really just building up my confidence there to go out and, and do sales. The tracker market is complex, but you want to maximize profits when installing or specifying tracker systems for your utility scale or large distributed generation solar projects. So use Trina Tracker with its innovative technology that can cut up to 200 man hours. Trina Tracker makes installations easier and faster so you can speed up installation times, reduce labor costs, and lower LCOE to achieve optimal project value. Learn more at mysuncast.com forward slash Trina. Have you been curious about utility scale storage? SunGrow's revolutionary liquid-cooled solution is revolutionizing the storage landscape. Its built-in DC-to-DC coupling combined with other features like higher energy density and 3% slower battery degradation make it a robust solution that companies nationwide are choosing. You can learn more about this innovative solution by SunGrow by visiting mysuncast.com forward slash SunGrow. Hey, can I borrow your attention for just one minute? How many of you in the residential solar install game right now would really say that your workflow is built to win? You know, in the 2010s, solar was all about sales. I think that the winners of the 2020s is really going to be contractors that focus on operational efficiency. See, margins are getting squeezed and there's a ton of competition out there, but everyone has an opportunity to improve. Would you like to know the score? 
of the value of your survey and design process? Would you like to hear about the evolution of the installer workflow? Well, then I would encourage you to join myself and my friend Jason Steinberg from Scanifly next Wednesday, the 31st of May at 2 p.m. Eastern time. Or maybe it's this Wednesday, or maybe you already missed it and you need to go see the replay at any point. You are going to benefit from the insights that we're going to reveal. The benefits of a tech-driven solar ops program, the transition from manual to digital surveys, it's all there. I hope that you will check in, tune in, register, and uh, throw us some hard questions. We always love it in our live broadcasts. Join us May 31st, 2 p.m. with Scanifly. See you there. Can you point to a time where you started to recognize working at a company that has such a long history in power and in um, power generation with gas turbines, namely, that renewable energy was both taking a foothold and going to be a bigger piece of the Siemens business for sales? Yeah, I think it was really my customers leading me there, right? So I mentioned that in that customer patch, there were operating accounts, but there were also utilities, kind of more traditional stuff. There was an organization that was a utility in another country and stood up a renewable in the U.S., right? So this organization was stood up here in the U.S. from another country, right, to start green energy. And so um, prior to when I took over the account, all the decisions were being made at their headquarters in another country. None of the procurement decisions were being made in the Boston area. Well, something changed in their own organization, and they were stood up enough in the U.S. that their headquarters trusted them to make these decisions, procurement decisions. So I went in there, and just that nuance, that change that had happened in that customer allowed the local relationships to happen. And so I was really successful at that company. They led me into the renewable industry, I would say. So they were standing up a lot of solar and a lot of uh, wind. And at this point, battery storage on a grid scale was kind of coming on the scene and coupled with those those renewables. And so they were into all of this uh, very forward-thinking stuff. This was, I don't even know how many years ago now, seven, eight years ago or yeah. so. And so I went in selfishly, like, let me sell you some transformers, yeah. right? Because that's one of our core transmission stuff is some of our core stuff beyond beyond the gas turbine, right? And so selfishly, I was like, okay, you guys need transformers for whatever this renewable thing is that you're doing. But once I got in there, you know, it was the electrical stuff. They needed switch gear. They needed e-houses. They needed lots of different things, right? Um, they needed software for, you know, dispatch and and they needed wind turbines and they needed batteries. So I was able to really grow kind of the order book with them. And, and in that process, really saw the work that they were doing and all the press releases they were doing and the projects they were doing. And it was really cool to be part of that um, kind of renewable transition that was happening on a really large scale, gigawatt scale of, of installation per year. So, um, yeah, that's kind of kind of how I got a flavor for the renewable stuff. And then I think my my thought of technology, like really got interested in technology and the different stuff. So I think it's appropriate at this point to frame for folks who maybe don't understand, like Siemens is such a big organization. You are head of sales for the Americas now for electrification, digitalization. Automation. Automation and digitalization. Yeah. EAD. Yep. What are the relevant basket of products that maybe a, a solar developer or a wind or energy storage developer would, would today look to Siemens for? Yeah. Well, I mean, certainly all the stuff to connect it to the grid, right? All the transmission assets, the transformers. We also, in my organization, we do a lot of feed studies too. So we can look at uh, feasibility studies. 
looking at projects and, and how all the parts and pieces fit together from an electrification standpoint. You can have whatever list of assets that you want on a site, whether it be wind or solar or hydrogen or geothermal. I mean, like yeah. you kind of name it. If, it's, if it needs electrical connection, uh, we come in and connect the stuff together and also make sure that the power management system works and we do it as automated and as digitized as possible, right? That would be something that for sure that are renewable. So some folks might think of automation as, as software for like tech stack, but where does automation take place in a power plant? Yeah, I mean, it takes place lots of different places, right? I mean, there's an entire control room in a power plant, and a lot of that is, you know, automated systems and, and um, sensors that are telling uh, you information. And it kind of bridges the automation and digitalization, if you will. The sensors are kind of collecting data and then making sense of it and then using some system to automate, some process to automate something, right? So we work a lot in the industrial sector as well. And so uh, we work in plants that have lots of different machinery. So, for example, we can help in your plant controls that if this machine doesn't operate during third shift, it automatically shuts down. Similar to like your nest thermostat. Like Johnson Controls and Honeywell. Exactly. Those are competitors in that room. So when we talk about electrification, like electrification is the buzzword now and electrify everything. Yeah. Siemens is on the electrical side, like the Juniper networks or, you know, like sitting as the backhaul, like basically making sure that the electrons have a place to go and a way to get there. Right. Well, right. and I think electrification is like a word, just like energy is such a big mm. word. It's yep. a means something different to a lot of different people, right? And so electrification in my world is um, we can rip and replace diesel engines converting. and yep. put in, you know, an electric I'm motor glad that drive. You went there. So it's converting reciprocating engines in, in most cases to electrical drive. Yeah, yeah. Diesel engines. Yeah, yeah exactly. Um, and so some of the applications. So there, I have a really cool part of the organization that a lot of people don't think uh, about or know that exists. And so um, I have both onshore and offshore applications. And uh, so offshore is anything offshore, um, like the oil and gas platforms. Okay, sure. Um, wind, I, oil and gas. Yeah, wind as well. I also have the marine. Underwater. Yep, subsea, exactly. Yeah. So I also have the marine division where we're electrifying ferries. So in the oh, recent, how cool! Yeah, in the recent, which comes back to my main maritime roots, which is kind of cool. But um, so in the recent um, infrastructure and investment and jobs uh, act, yep, the IIJ, right. the IIJA actually. Okay. There was right. billions of dollars in there for electrification of ferries. So all the states have gotten money to electrify ferries to take them from being diesel to being electric. Yep. And so we have onboard battery systems and electrifying ferries. And so it's a, it's a whole nother part Were you all of involved the, in the ferry for Niagara Falls that uh, was electrified? Um, no, I don't think so. But we okay. have 11 right now, I'm growing, 11 um, ferries, elect, electrified ferries that we're going to be delivering here in the United States and we're talking with all the all the states and their their needs and the ferry operators and yeah. the shipyards. And is it retrofitting existing ferries or create or building new ones? We can do both. We can okay. either do a full rip and replace, or we can work literally with the shipyard as they yeah. build the ship and put all of the controls and automation and the electrification yeah. on on ships. Um, so that's yeah. So it's not just the ferries, but also when we talk about renewables, so the offshore wind. So when you think about it, we all know and we've heard if you're in the wind industry, the, the Jones Act and Jones Act vessels and like installation yes. vessels is an issue for sure. But if you set that aside and you think about the life of these now, let's pretend they're all installed power plants for offshore wind. Yeah. There's going to need to be vessels to send out crews to maintain, yeah. right? They're going to be need to be vessels to hotel crews out there to supply with replacement parts and all that. 
So if you've spent billions of dollars to stand up an offshore wind farm and you want to be sustainable yeah. and, and green, right, you probably want your vessel operations to also yeah. be, be green. And so we're working with um, the offshore wind community to make sure that the vessels are, are decarbonized. Uh, we've also worked with NOAA and non-combatant naval vessels to electrify all of their stuff because clearly they're worried about the ocean and the environment and going out and doing surveys. Wow. So they want to be decarbonized. Similarly, we just announced back in November, we're working with a partner um, that's in the Pacific Northwest that's a naval architecture firm. And we're doing the first of its kind hydrogen powered uh, marine vessel for oh, cool. Scripps Oceanographic Institute no because clearly they care about sustainability. So, so, yeah, that's a whole part of my marine and offshore. So then offshore as well. So the platform, the oil platforms, we have a really cool application using floating wind. You could couple it with marine grade batteries. You could also couple it with an electrolyzer. Floating wind to power an offshore oil grid. Oil yeah. Rig. So you have an offshore microgrid to electrify your offshore rig. Yeah. Right. Instead of using the diesel or, or whatever else you, you have on, on sure. right now. So those are some Which of the. Which has to be shipped out. <laughs> right, right. Yeah. So, so those are some of the electrification. Like I said, that word electrification is, yeah. is huge. So that's the maritime it's and potential. offshore. But then also onshore, we have oil and gas, pipeline, chemical refineries, the whole fiber industry, which is more than just pulp and paper, but fiberglass, um, paper machines. So that's where you get, you know, electrification and automation becomes really important in all of these process industries yeah. to yeah. help electrify their processes and, and yeah. um, make them more efficient. Yeah, well, I think that, the term electrolyzer is something that many people in the industry three years, four years ago had no idea what it was, that it existed, if they hadn't already been thinking about um, fuel cells or, or the like. And now, uh, I mean, you guys just made a big announcement with Oxy about electrolyzers. It's becoming a, uh, a household term. Yeah. Talk about the importance of the technology around electrolyzing. Yeah, so the, the announcement with Oxy was actually about uh, direct air capture. Oh, and the right. compression for DAX. You guys do have an electrolyzer. Yeah, we do side have of the business, yeah, right? Absolutely, yeah. for sure. So on the electrolyzer side of the business, we call it a silizer because it's Siemens Energy. Uh, silizer, uh, yeah. It's an electrolyzer made by Siemens, Siemens Energy. Yeah. yeah. So we have an electrolyzer at seventeen and a half megawatts, which is a lot larger than um, maybe some of the renewable, unless you're really large scale renewable, might be thinking of coupling. So a lot of electrolyzers here in the U.S. at this point or up until this point, has been like one or two megawatts. Yeah. Ours is 17 and a half. So that's really a lot larger. And, and frankly, we're working on larger ones, and we like to couple it just for economics, uh, couple really enough to make 50 megawatts together. Right. Um, so that is a What's pretty large application. What's application for that 17 and a half megawatt electrolyzer? Yeah, so on the green um, hydrogen side, so of course the feedstock would be some Solar, type of wind. renewable, yeah. right? Solar or wind. Um, and there's lots of, we've seen lots of different applications yeah. where people want to use those green electrons, right, to feed into an electrolyzer to make green, quote unquote, molecules yeah. on the other green side. Green ammonia. Right, green ammonia, um, e-methanol, e-kerosene, yep. um, all of the above. So, you know, you could use that in sustainable aviation and sustainable yeah. marine fuels, uh, any of those sustainable steel. fuel, right? You can use it um, in... Yeah, for sure, steel and, and some of the hard-to-abate industries to offset some of the gray hydrogen that they're already yep. using. And then you can also, uh, the ammonia industry is another whole huge offtake for, for hydrogen. Giant yeah. bulk of black. Yeah, yeah. so it basically takes, the, the electrolyzer takes uh, electrons and turns them into molecules, right. which are yeah. different pathways for energy. You've needed all of the 20 years career at Siemens <laughs> to pack in the knowledge it requires to run all of these different sales organizations. Yeah, 
I want to go back to the Women's Energy Network. Um, and maybe I want to start with your decision all the way back in the beginning of your career to go to a mostly a male-dominated environment, the main Maritime Academy. Can you talk to me about the decision there and how that ripple effect gave you the sense of, of confidence to stand in a position of leadership where there hasn't been traditionally a lot of female leadership? Yeah. So weirdly enough, I went to May Maritime when I was in fourth grade for a Girl Scout event. And we get to sleep on the ship. So all of the maritime uh, academies have a training vessel, which you ship out on it. So there's a ship, usually a retired naval vessel. So ours was a retired um, hospital naval vessel. And so uh, in fourth grade, in a very impressionable age of a a young girl, didn't even know what STEM was, right? We talked so much about cultivating girls into STEM. I didn't even know what it was, but I went on this Girl Scout trip and I was like just enamored with all of the technology and the just the coolness of being able to sleep on a ship. And it was just really cool. And I, I think I made up my mind really in fourth grade. It's weird that it just made such an impression on me. And I didn't necessarily think about the male-female component. I was yeah. just so wowed. I was geeking out on the technology basically, yeah. but I had two older brothers. And so they prepared uh-huh. me really well to be in kind of a sure. male-dominated right? Yes. <laughs> as older brothers will do. Um, and so, yeah, my entire like education kind of I mean, I I applied elsewhere, but that was really where, and that's when I kind of thought about going there. So I went, um, and when I started attending, there were probably about 700 students. It's a very small school, and I think probably maybe 30 or 50 women amongst that that group. Um, So male-dominated. I was used to being the only girl in in the classroom quite often, right? I pledged a fraternity because there aren't any sororities because, you know, it was a co-ed fraternity. Um, And so just, you know, kind of a brotherhood and the guys were all great and, you know, have only fond memories, I would say, of that that educational um, opportunity. And I guess I didn't really notice the statistics at the time of like that I was amongst not so many um, women. But I think it's really prepared me in my, in this organization and in this industry. The energy sector for sure. Yeah. Yeah. And so I think it was just... um, it's, it's weird how things seem to line up now. Like I mentioned, it goes back to my, you know, the, my marine organization goes back to my maritime yeah. roots. And so... Well, I have a question following to something you said a little earlier that really stood out to me, that your closer circle of work colleagues really were allies for you. So for men in leadership in particular, but generally recognizing that we do have still a male-dominated industry how can we be allies to our female colleagues in particular, both to help them feel seen, but to recognize and elevate them in their careers, like help them get into a pathway that doesn't sidecar their skill set? Yeah. No, I mean, I think just shared, um, shared experience, right? Like I mentioned, you guys are dads, yeah. we're moms, right? Like there's a shared experience there of being parents. And I think guys have as well not just not talked about home life right because yeah. but i think talking about what your kids are doing and what you're proud of you know right. in the soccer games and this that Being whatever, whatever to you're not, doing to decompartmentalize yeah. yeah and and having like shared communication and conversation about your home life yeah. um it gives us common talking points so we don't feel like because i'm a mom they're probably going to see me as distracted i can't do this right like yeah you're a dad cool. too That's right a- you know so why would you be any more distracted than i would be it's we have kids, right? Um, so I think just having common language and common um, experiences that we can talk about and bond on, right, is one thing. Because as small as those coffee talk conversations are, 
it validates to me as a mom that, you know, I can do more than just yeah. be mom because you can do more than just be dad and no yeah. one's worried about your that's distraction right. or anything, in fact, right? It's expected. Right. Yeah. Exactly. So it's expected. So and, I think and I'm not catered to. Right. And I think that that's a really simple, yeah. like have the coffee conversations yeah. about your kids and a common experience. That's a super easy one. You know, I think when you see something that's just that's stupid, right? Mention it, like be an ally in that room. Like yeah. I mentioned a lot of times I'm the only woman in, in a room and I've yeah. been in rooms over the last 20 some odd years where people say stupid things and it's, um, whether it's intentional or not, it's like humiliating, like it's degrading your experience, your professionalism. Can you give me an example? Like give us an example of things that commonly happen, right? Yeah. Like yeah. Ways, I mean, that, ways, that, ways that we absentmindedly speak and, yeah. it, and it, it is, it is denigrating or. Yeah. Um, I mean, just as simple as like mentioning in a degrading way, like something that you're wearing, right? Like I was wearing a, a, vert- or a horizontal striped shirt at one, one time. I was in a meeting with 25 people and one of the guys was like, you really should know better than to wear horizontal stripes. They make you look fat. And wow. I was like, was that just like a fashion commentary, right? right? Um, or was he like saying I'm overweight personally? Like, so as a woman, yeah. you start, Especially with body image, right? So internally, our heads do a whole different thing. Yeah. On that, like, you're probably like, oh, he was a jerk to say that, or okay, I want more stripes again. Or I can think of how, in a male context, it'd be like, it it would be kind of the jovial thing, like the fraternity thing to be like, right? Yo, dude, you're just gonna make you look fat. Yeah. Right. And but it still is. It's the same level of body shaming, without taking into consideration a that that's wrong for any gender. Right. (laughs) B, like psychologically, what that means for. for females typically is like, it, there's a different level of like consciousness around it. Right. Because of how society right. raises us to believe that there's some, there is some like, in, there's a, a heightened level of awareness or importance. Right. So I don't know, it was just kind of a, a weird, I didn't know how to feel about it. I still don't know how to feel about it. Right. And I was, I was mentioned, I was the only woman yeah. in the room and um, yeah. I was mentioning it to a, a male mentor of mine and he was like, who are, who were the allies in the room? Right. Like, why didn't anybody Nobody speak up or say anything? And that's what he was more concerned about. And I didn't even think of that. So now I consciously think of in any situation like that that comes out, and they're all random, crazy right. stuff you can't make up, right? Who was the ally? And to thank that ally, oh, right? Yeah. So I try to make a point. My current boss is a huge proponent of diversity and chairs our diver- as the executive sponsor of our diversity um, council. And he has a wife and two daughters and, you know, he is very supportive of um, maternity leave and just all kinds of different, different things that we have going on internally. And because he is an ally, he's a dad of strong female, you know, daughters and a strong wife. And and so I I make a conscious point to thank him for his allyship and like doing what he can do in his position for, you know, treating his female colleagues uh, and frankly, all of his colleagues, no matter what the diversity background, right. it's not a male-female thing, but treating them like he would like his daughters to be treated oh, wow. when they enter the workforce. And I really think that that, you know, sit there and think, all of us, this is how we can be allies to each other, I think, is how would you want your kids in 10, 15, 20 years when they enter their— To experience Yeah, the to work. experience the workforce, right? Wow. Yeah. I'd love to know if you could share an example of how you've mentored someone in Siemens and helped her advance in her role— Yeah, I do a lot of mentorship, actually. I have a lot of mentees, both inside and outside. I love the academic community. I go to colleges and speak and usually take on kind of graduate-level students and and that stuff. So I really like the 
younger. I, I think it's really important to also have upward mentors, right? So there's so much I learned from newer entrants to the to the industry and to our organization. I mentioned that recently I had someone in my organization who just didn't see herself going into a position because she didn't see other women, frankly, in the position because they're all guys that happen to be in that same role. And so she it never really dawned on her despite her competence in, you know, being an engineer and and her experience. Um, it just never dawned on her that she could be successful doing that because she didn't see anybody. And what doing was the that. role transition? Yeah, so she went from being an engineer to being in sales. sales. And, but she had done some incredible customer-facing work yeah. that, you know, it just takes seeing the potential in someone. And and just like prior uh, bosses of mine had done that I mentioned, right, is really building their confidence to, to allow them to see their capabilities right. beyond what limitations have been put on them stereotypically or through whatever whatever happened in their career up to this point. And there could be multiple things, just like me. I took a sidestep for a personal reason, but I needed that kind of kickstart and confidence. So I think just building up people's confidence. And um, I think right now, too, I I didn't even realize, but I sat today here at Sarah Week with a a woman that I've worked with for years. And um, she's like, uh, some of the uh, communications people were taking pictures. And she's like, oh, I'm so glad I got to be in a picture next to you. And I'm like, seriously, I thought she was just being really sweet. She's like, no, like you're really important to the company, especially to women in the company and things that you do. Yeah. And I just, I did never realize her view. Right. So even that, like, give me confidence that like, even on hard days, the hard stuff is what really you can share with people that they can see themselves. Right. And they can see their own potential and that you don't have to be perfect. You just have to try and, and put some effort into it and work it out, you know? Well, in honor of Women's Women's History Month, I wanted to also focus on something that you're talking about here at Sarah Week, which is the Women's Energy Network, which you're the president for the Boston chapter of Women's Energy Network. Can you talk about the support network that has grown, I'll say, around you and, and because of you? Yeah. Over the course of your career, Women's Energy Network, but also there are other there are other ways for women to plug in. But would you talk about that allyship specifically, those kinds of organizations and what they what they mean for helping increase that diversity and visibility? Yeah. So the Women's Energy Network was actually founded here in Houston uh, okay. 25, almost 30 years ago wow. now. And I mentioned I had moved up to Boston and um, I really didn't have a network there, certainly not in the energy industry. So I had always been looking for different things. I was part of the Boston Chamber has a, a women's leadership program. I was part of that. So there are things you can find. But specific to the energy industry, there really wasn't anything. And so, gosh, six years ago now, um, some of us got together and we had found out about the the Women's Energy Network in Houston and they have multiple different chapters across the U.S. And so we said, well, let's stand up a Boston chapter. So I think six or seven of us from six or seven different companies, um, pretty diverse from a company perspective, um, we stood up the chapter. And so we've grown it. I was um, founding board member and then I'm actually past president this year. Um, I was president in 2022. And so those, I guess, six years, um, just kind of cultivating this local ecosystem of women in energy. And again, energy means lots of things to lots of different people. So we have people from utilities. We have people from renewable developers. We have all over the place people now from, I would say, chemical companies because of the hydrogen interest. The whole offshore wind community has kind of come along in that time. Policymakers from the Department of Energy, like just a really diverse um, group of women. How big is the ch- Boston chapter? Yeah, so we have now grown from those six or seven to, I think we have about 300 in our Whoa. membership now. 
Um, and we really, so some of the key things I'm, I'm proud of from my, um, my presidential year last year, a couple of things. We instituted co-directorship positions on the board of directors because of all the things that we already talked about that women juggle and work and family and everything. We felt like having a, a, a co-director would help job share. So that made it easier for people to commit to being on the board. Um, we really focused on diversity and in multiple different dimensions. So we partnered with AABE and um, Out in Energy and just some other adjacent organizations to help bring content to our members and for us to bring our content to their members. And then another dimension of diversity that we focused on was diversity on our board. So diversity of companies, diversity of sectors of the energy industry. Um, so we're pretty well-rounded. We also layered on an executive board level. So we have very senior C-level women that advise us. Um, so we meet with them quarterly and kind of update them on what we're doing as a chapter and get their direction on what if you do this. And also they contribute amazing resources. You know, they've been through this for the last 30, 35 years. Um, similar stories to mine of being in a minority in our industry. So they want to give back as well. And they're in, now in a position to be able to give back uh, through lots of different resources. And then the one thing I'm super, super proud of. Well, oh, one other thing. So um, we also we also had um, some of our members uh, featured in a children's book. Ah, uh, yes, Aaron's book. Um, yeah, Aaron's book. Yeah. So Aaron... We've had um, Aaron on the show. Good, okay, uh, yeah. So, Aaron Twomley. Yeah, so Aaron Twomley did an amazing book. So she has a series going. So she had um, Women in STEM Careers was the first one, but then she went more pointedly into the energy industry yeah. for the second book. And I'm sure there are lots of other books to cover lots of other industries, but... Um, I was fortunate enough to be in as a trailblazer and some of our other um, women in Boston that are on the board are also in the book for their contributions um, as well. So we, we've done a lot of outreach through the YMCA and um, inner, inner city Boston YMCAs and, and did some book signings with the kids there and gave them out the books. So that's really cool. So that's part of that network, right? Um, and then the one thing I, I'm really proud of is we stood up the, the scholarship in the Boston chapter. So Houston gives away, the Houston chapter gives away about $100,000 a year um, in scholarships. And we always aspired to open our own scholarships. So this year we put together um, and through some support, again, allyship. So Siemens Energy donated a bunch of money as seed money for that scholarship, as did Anel Green Power is up in, in Boston, a huge um, supporter of ours as well. So they're um, helping contribute. They support our chapter in lots of different ways. And I could go on and on for the yeah. different companies. But so now we have, um, this is the first year, our application just opened on March 1st. And it's intended for women in Massachusetts who are pursuing a degree or are going into an energy career as evidenced by significant coursework or like a capstone or internship or something to demonstrate that they're interested in energy whether it be a junior or senior um, in undergrad or graduate school. And it comes with not only a scholarship, but a one-year mentorship with one of our members, depending on what part of the industry. So just some really cool work that is fun to give back to, you know, women and the pipeline of women that are coming into this um, industry. So, Lynette, I could ask you a million yeah. <laughs> more questions. and I really think I could sit with you for a couple more hours, but for those who feel in, inspired and, and connected with you now and want to reach out, how do you like to be found? Yeah, you can find me on LinkedIn. You yeah. probably can put a link to that. We will in, certainly link yeah, to that. That's yeah. probably the best place because then you can start a chat and then we can, you yeah. know, figure out time to meet or talk more in person. So. Yeah, I would love to have a follow-on chat with you. And I want to thank you for taking the time to speak to and mentor our community from your 
20 plus years of experience. It's been really, uh, I've, I've learned a, a ton just in this conversation. Thank you so much. I was really excited when I was told you reached out and wanted to talk to me. I was like, oh, me, what does he want to talk to me about? Yeah, <laughs> so well, thank honestly, you for the, the conversation. The honor, the honor is mine. I, I'm glad that you brought in Aaron's, uh, Aaron's book because we featured her this month as well. Yeah, she's doing some great stuff. You should definitely put the link to the book in there I will, too. I yeah. will, for sure. Well, yeah. Thank you so much for yeah. joining us. Thank you. Well, that is a wrap on today's Practical Insights from Lynette Casey. Lynette, thank you so much. And thanks to the team over at Siemens Energy for helping make this interview possible. I really appreciate you taking the time out of a busy schedule during Sarah Week. And I thank you, Solar Warrior, for taking time out of your busy day, week, and career to stop by Suncast. It really matters that you've made it this far. So I'd love to hear your feedback. The easiest way is to follow the social media links and the footer of whatever podcast player you're in. Connect with me on LinkedIn. You can also email me, nico at mysuncast.com. I do make time to respond to listeners who tune in and reach out. Please feel free to do so. We'll be right back here on Thursday with another executive profile. This time, an industry OG, Mr. Craig Lawrence. Perhaps you followed him on Twitter as I did. It's where I first met him. Or maybe you've recently heard him on many other podcasts as he and his partner, Neil Dykeman, have been making the rounds as they grow energy transition ventures. You'll want to tune in and hear some of his amazing stories all the way back to opportunities to invest in Enphase and having his company acquired by SunPower. Craig really has seen it and done it all. I mean, some really fun stories. And if you love stories like these, well, there are more than 500 and 80 such stories now in the Suncast canon at mysuncast.com. You can get all the resources and highlights, and book links, and all the other recommendations in all of our back catalog by going to mysuncast.com. And if you've been wondering how you could partner with us here on Suncast as a sponsor or get coaching for me personally to help scale your clean energy business, transition into the solar industry, or just commune with other like-minded souls, head over to mysuncast.com. You'll find what you need. Remember, you are what you listen to. Thanks again for showing up, Solar Warrior. It is half the battle.